the last dabs of light had been sucked out of the sky, so I followed the path towards Gunnar's old home with a torch application on my phone. Climbing uphill through the spittering rain, I saw asylum, a tiny shed, a hoop of corrugated iron cluttered with planks of rotten wood and blocks of stone. Crawling inside, I tucked myself into a ball, hugging my damp knees. I was really spent, and it was only later that I mustered the energy to unroll my sleeping bag. This was the place Gunnar loved so much that he gambled his life on the chance to stay there. In the morning, it would show me its beauty. This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Stories of migration, nationhood, religious conflict, sex, and violence have preoccupied Europe for millennia. Nicholas Jubber joins us from Dorset to talk about the power of storytelling in the European epic tradition, the subject of his most recent book, in which he travels throughout Europe following some of history's most epic stories, like the Odyssey and Beowulf. So now, here is Nicholas Jubber. Nicholas Jubber, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. So your new book is Epic Continent, uh, which was shortlisted for the Edward Stanford Travel Writing Awards, I think the book of the year. And now we know it didn't win, but being shortlisted (laughs) is an honor in itself. And uh, we should... It absolutely is, yeah. We should note that you won the award previously for an an earlier book, and you were also shortlisted for another one. (laughs) So you, uh, you have a record of accolades here. Oh, thank you, thank you. Uh, well, it's always nice to be to be put on a list, um, uh, <laughs> however arbitrary they might be sometimes. Just so. not a fascist <laughs> list, right? <laughs> so, t- uh, tell us about your new book, Epic Continent. Uh, what, what's it about? Yeah, well, it came out of of uh, a lot of thinking and anxiety about Europe. I think probably more of the anxiety than the thinking at the beginning, and it was in the summer of. 2016, with the Brexit referendum happening, and and this sense of 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 a kind of national self analysis over what is what Britain's place w- in terms of Europe is, but also a feeling for myself of 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 terrible disappointment in the rhetoric around that referendum that didn't really seem to take into account very much about European culture or the way that that connected with us in in Britain. You know, I've always felt that our that our, our culture, our, our language, our, our storytelling, our history is so intertwined with Europe, and that didn't really seem to be a big part of the debate. And I wanted to write about that, not necessarily as a as a riposte to Brexit or to the to ideas about what political system we should be part of, but just as a way of offering a different perspective on 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 Britain and Europe, and and I knew that there would be a lot of people writing about the the the, the modern day political situation. So I, I guess I felt like there was there was a space and a, and perhaps a need for for writing about and thinking about some of the 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 longer term 
ideas, the 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 ancient history, the the and the recent history, and 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 the way that that all connected. And I guess it came out of for me a sense that I've had for a long time of of the past and the present being very much intertangled and not really separate exactly. Um, which had led me a few years earlier on a journey across Iran and Afghanistan, where I was looking at um, the epic stories of of the Persian speaking people, and I had been really amazed by how resonant those stories were in that part of the world. And I'd thought at the time that that was very different from 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 the West or from from Europe. But I was increasingly feeling that with people were talking about history coming back and of um, a lot of a lot of political references to history and a sense that 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 perhaps these 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 ancient stories which we sometimes think of as very far away and obscure were actually much more close than 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 we had realized and and then i started looking into it and looking into some of these stories starting with the the homeric epics and, and looking at epic stories right across europe and and the more research i did the more i realized that people were retelling these stories and reimagining them and and engaging with them and sometimes in very creative and exciting ways and sometimes in slightly disturbing ways when it came to the way that they were being used by politicians so i felt there was a story there to be told about our ancient storytelling and, and 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 its relationship with 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 our continent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, anyone who picks up this book and reads it will will note that it has a very historical facing um, story, and also it's you know well researched historically. We, we can talk about that a little bit uh, later, because I think it's an interesting part of the book and a very important one. But from the perspective of American, <clears throat> kind of talking about the Brexit thing, it, it seems absurd that. The, I guess the conversation around the referendum um, was not just political, but also kind of veering into like this, this cultural grounds. And from the perspective of an American, of course, uh, England, the United Kingdom, that's part of Europe, right? <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. your book, it's called Epic Continent, right? Adventures in the Great Stories of Europe. It takes you all over the continent and also in the United Kingdom. Um, and we can talk about some of the stories here. But how do you see, I guess, some of the stories like, like Beowulf that have the connections to England? How do you see those stories having conversations with some of the other stories in, in Europe? Well, I think uh, it's a great question. I think that one of, th- one of the things I think that was a discovery for me of, of, of exploring these stories was that at first I saw them as quite separate. I, I saw the Odyssey as, as, as one story, Beowulf is another, the Icelandic sagas is very separate and the more i learned about them the more i i delved into them and the more i met other people who had who had who had researched them or or, or were retelling them in some way i became increasingly aware of how these stories do all join up i mean with beowulf for example it's such a fascinating tale because it's it's set in denmark and sweden mm-hmm. the the hero comes from 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 what is now uh, sweden but the, the 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 most famous part of the action takes place in denmark when he comes to to help king frothgar to save him from the monster grendel is that where the uh, fight yeah, the big fight with the with the great monster grendel and and his mother who lives in the murky depths of the mere and and yet the 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 story was set down in in Anglo-Saxon um, in England, and um, the landscape actually, when you look into it, it seems to have, be very evocative of East Anglia, the eastern part of England. So it has these these connections across different parts of of, of Britain and Scandinavia. And it actually, when the story was rediscovered in the late 18th century, there was a real debate over who who owned it. 
the um, a sense of ownership from 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 Danes and from from also from Germans because it was sent a sense of it being part of the wider Germanic culture and and also from people in Britain and and I think that and that that kind of debate can often lead people I think into very un pleasant uh, debates over over ideas about ownership and you know, who owns a tail. But I think what is interesting there is that sense of a story that's, that stretches across borders and mm-hmm. um, that enables us to see, um, from a British perspective, certainly enables us to see just how interconnected our culture is with with the culture, out, uh, with, with the rest of the continent, with other parts of the continent. And then as you see the 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 way that the story of Beowulf has 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 developed, you find there's a burlesque version of it in Iceland. There's there's echoes of of other stories. There's um, I've read uh, theses and dissertations where scholars have looked into connections between the Odyssey and Beowulf, for example. And you start to see all these patterns and these 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 crossovers between different parts of Europe. And I think that's uh, one of the really exciting things that that these epic stories can do for us is that because they're although they've often been narrowed down into being being seen as national epics and national stories. Quite international. Yeah, yeah, they're actually, they're pre-ideas of nation states. So they actually often unconsciously celebrate the reach and interconnectedness of, of the continent. You see that in so many of them. I mean, in the Nibelungenlied, for example, which is famously the German epic, it's 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 always known, it's often introduced as the great German epic. And yet, the battle that 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 it, that it climaxes in is has has got knights from Italy, from Denmark, from all sorts of different places. It takes place in what is now Hungary. Um, the warrior who ends the battle is from Verona, so it's not as German as the um, uh, nationalists who try to use it would assume. And that often the problem with these stories is that they've often been misread by people who who've been right. looking <laughs> for things that they can get out of them rather than just enjoying them as great stories. And one of the things I wanted to do with this with this book really was to go back to what great stories these are and to celebrate these amazing stories that that have been told for for centuries and have survived for for centuries and in some cases millennia and to to sort of really relish that wonderful storytelling power that they have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, many people like to read these old epics perhaps because they help us, I don't know, imagine communities and histories um, because they're good stories, as you say, but also because they also deal, you know, they deal with the human condition for better or worse. Um, They do, yeah. I want to ask you about some of the ways in which uh, these epics have been um, interpreted or perhaps misinterpreted by national interests. And so um, let's talk about which epics you cover and then talk about how some of them, and in particular the Kosovo cycle and maybe the Song of Roland, yeah, how 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 they're interpreted as being part of this uh, national narrative. Yeah, should I give a rundown of the sort of the geography yeah, of the, the book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because I think one of the things the book came out of was that that sort of as I've touched on earlier about that sort of anxiety over Europe, and and once I started looking at a map and thinking I want to do a journey across Europe, and I I looked at Greece and Turkey, and I thought, well, you know, you could start with the Odyssey or with with Homer. You know, I thought you've it's got to start to with start. <laughs> you've got to start with Homer. It's sort of the beginning of the European epic tradition, and um, you know, either with the Iliad or the Odyssey. And I thought, as a travel book, it's going to be the Odyssey because it's the great epic of travel. Um, so, so Greece was really the, the the obvious starting point, and then looking across the continent, so the other the absolute other end of the continent, you've got Iceland, and I, I knew I I had a big book of the Icelandic sagas that I'd had um, um, since my student days, and I, I thought you know I, I want to be able to go there and, and explore the sagas. So those are two great sort of end points of of the epic tradition, and one is the very beginning of the epic tradition, and the other is much later in the tradition, and 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 then I started to look at other epics between them, and the the stories that I chose 
stories, they tended to be, they were stories that, I mean, I read a lot of different evidence, but the ones I chose were the ones that really spoke to me. I felt they were saying, I was, I was excited by them, but that they were also saying something about, about the different parts of Europe today, but also that they were moving the journey forward. So I, I went, uh, there's the, the Balkan tale, the Kosovo cycle about a medieval battle and the, 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 the morning songs and the, the, the aftermath of the battle. And then going into Western Europe with the Song of Roland, which is a great sort of chivalric epic of the the, the battle between Islam and Christendom, of the knights of, of the knights of Charlemagne against the mm. Saracens, and then moving into Central Europe with the Nibelungenlied, the the Germanic epic with its uh, very fiery narrative, and then up into Scandinavia and Britain with Beowulf, that great sort of monster tale, and then ending the journey up in Iceland, where it felt like it was this sort of very much this land apart, you know, very geographically very different and um, and obviously an island very far from the rest of Europe. And yet one of the things that I was amazed by that I discovered there was how much its epic storytelling and saga storytelling leans on and 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 communicates with storytelling traditions from right across the continent. It's interesting in the beginning of the book, you have a, a map of where the journey takes you and starting point. Troy, Turkey, <laughs> right? And yeah. so, I mean, perhaps that's an, an interesting um, comment on kind of the nature of what it means to be a European in light of the conversation about uh, Turkey, the Turkey question, right? Which uh, figures prominently in your book, not just because of Syria, but because of, of Turkey. And we can go into that um, a little bit. So how have uh, politicians kind of used these narratives for their ideological interests, if that makes sense? Yeah, well, it's one of the sad things about these stories that they have been used and misused a lot. I think one of the ones that was most striking for me was the uh, the Balkan epic, the Kosovo cycle, which is this story of a medieval battle and the heroes who go into the battle and sacrifice their lives for their king and, and their kingdom. And then a lot of the songs of the people left behind who are usually uh, women, the mothers and wives. Uh, there's one really poignant story about the mother of the Yugovici whose sons have all died in the battle and she's still waiting for the last the news of her last loved one and then finally his hand is dropped into her lap by a raven and 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 she shatters to pieces broken by her grief and there's mm. lots of really beautifully poetic stories of grief and it should really be a, a, a cycle of stories that would encourage people never to go to war again and yet the sad thing about so many of these epics is that despite their crystallizing how tragic war is they become motivations for war because people latch onto the ideas about the honor and glory of dying in war rather than the 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 terrible violence that 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 is being or they they reddish rather too much the terrible violence i mean often these stories are they are both reveling in the violence and they're warning against them and it's that ambiguity that can be so exciting about them but that can obviously be quite dangerous yeah, with the, the kosovo cycle has a bad yeah. ending right <laughs> yeah yeah i mean pretty much everybody dies you know it's there it's it's very clear you know it's not saying you're going to get out of this alive but it's 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 had a huge impact throughout history, throughout um, throughout Serbian history. The story itself is that there was an army gathered from all over the region of Albanians, Wallachians, Croats, Serbians, Hungarians, all sorts of different nations coming together. So it should really be a story of of community in the Balkans of all the different Balkan nations coming to fight together, and in that case, fighting against the the Ottoman Empire. But in fact, it, in the way that the story has been told, it's focused very much on the Serbian side of it, and and so it's become a big Serbian. National story and it's um, people used it in the 19th century. It became a big part of the of, of fighting for independence from the Ottoman Empire, um, sung especially by gooslers who were people who sung with a single stringed fiddle and and they sort of they play on the fiddle and they'd sing songs about the glorious warriors of old and then they 
swap the fiddle for a bayonet and go out and fight in the battle. And it was used by the conspirators who pl- who plotted the, the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand in 1914. So it's had a huge impact, actually, that in Western Europe and in the Western world in general, we, we should be more aware of, really, because it, it has had ripple effects outside of the Balkans. Um, and it, all the way to the, 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 the wars of the 1990s, it was used a lot then by leaders like Slobodan Milosevic, who made a big speech referring to the warriors in um, on the 600th ba- anniversary of the battle and there was a huge crowd of hundreds of thousands who gathered um listening to him and were very influenced by by that speech and many others that he made and even more so Radovan Karadzic the Bosnian Serb leader who who was himself a goosler he played these songs and he was really inspired by them and loved them and he sang them and and he was filmed singing and performing these stories about warriors like uh, Milos Obilic and Prince Lazar and the, the great warriors of the Kosovo cycle while Sarajevo was being bombarded under his orders in the longest siege in modern history so it's it's a it's a story an epic cycle that has found itself wrapped up in modern political events and those are because they're not that long ago they're all the more all the more disturbing you know they were in the 1990s and amongst the people I met on the journey was a, a soldier who had fought in those battles and he told me that he was a goosler he sang those songs and he said whenever I sang them in the trenches before we went out to battle the men would all fight all the harder so it was a real sort mm-hmm. of lesson I think in the the dark side of epic that it, it, it can be very exciting and thrilling but it also it can be a driver for some of these really dangerous even diabolical events yeah and it also feeds into kind of this self-portrait that Europeans some Europeans perhaps have of themselves, you know, especially those on the far right. I I don't want to get into politics so much here, but when you have people like Marine Le Pen and others, you know, harking back to these old stories as as evidence for the European identity, it it does nothing if speak to the power of these stories in in the popular imagination. And this is something that you speak about uh, in reference to the song of Roland, right? So could you remind us what or how Marine Le Pen used that story? Yeah, well, Marine Le Pen is really interested in a sort of a sort of chocolate box version of medieval France, and I guess there's a certain section of French society, mm-hmm. as there is in every society, that looks back to the sort of these golden ages. And and um, I think with Marine Le Pen, she's particularly keen on Joan of Arc and and uh, various particular moments from from medieval history. But the Song of Roland <laughs> is certainly one that she has used. There's um, um, yeah, there are certain phrases from the Song of Roland that have come into her speeches, um, and that's. There's something that you find with with a lot of the epics. It's the same with the the Nibelungen epic in Germany, which has been used by the alternative for Deutschland, and even in Britain, actually, Beowulf, which uh, I was really surprised when I discovered mm. that Nigel Farage, the um, <clears throat> leader of the uh, of, of the so-called Brexit Party and of uh, the um, various movements for trying to push Brexit forward, had used. Uh, the 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 idea of Beowulf and sort of paraphrased Beowulf and sort of mashed it up a bit with with something from from the, the venerable Bede's writings in in one of his uh, passages in which he was trying to uh, sort of promote ideas of Anglo-Saxon identity. So I think a lot of one of the problems is that politicians tend to focus on these stories as sort of tribalizing brands for identity labeling. And so they try to pull people together under this idea that here is here is something ancient and, and venerable that therefore gives a sort of respectability to our sense of tribalism. And 
by doing that, they're, they're taking away from the much more interesting aspects of the stories, which are often about more cosmopolitan or at least more international, more more border crossing um, you know if you, uh, if you if you look into the the story of the song of roland uh, for example the they're not just french knights they're they're from all over the all over europe they've they're all coming together under charlemagne in that particular battle and even more interestingly actually is the decorative subtext underneath the plot where you have roland and his fellow knights who they're all the, the christian knights who are going off to fight against the saracens and yet they're playing chess and backgammon and they're sitting on beautiful silks which are specifically identified as having been brought from the middle east and from arabia so there's this sense of trade that's going on and really uh, i think a very exciting tapestry of trade of sort of commercial mercantile references that undermines the conflict that is at the heart of the narrative and that is i think it's actually really exciting because it's a reminder that that even when there are all these conflicts going on there's commerce going on there's there's people are trading and exchanging goods and storytelling and mm-hmm. And then when you go into the backgrounds and into the the origins of some of these stories, you find these all sorts of connections, whether it's the the Odyssey, for example, uh, which we think of as being the sort of quintessentially European epic. And yet it has so much in common with with Gilgamesh and with the uh, the 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 Sumerian epic. And and so there's all these connections with with Indian epics and, and all kinds of other stories. So you can pin down a sort of identitarian narrow interpretation of these stories but you can also if you want to go for something that is mm-hmm. i think more generous and more broad-ranging and that i think is more exciting and a more exciting way of looking at it yeah which kind of leads to another question right um and if people can interpret an epic or read into an epic a certain way kind of like how people reference the bible you know to to make meaning out of yeah. what's going on today yeah. right they, they go back to yeah. these stories to find meaning um i've used this now a few times in our conversation i said misinterpret but really is it a misinterpretation or is it just an interpretation you know what i'm saying can somebody misinterpret I guess the Song of Roland, for example, um, in the major kind of plot or the major storyline, is is that a misinterpretation for someone to say this is a story about, I don't know, Christians versus Muslims, and therefore that should be at the heart of the way in which we read this? No, it's not. I don't think it is a misinterpretation. I think that you that is a perfectly valid reading of it, and that was the reading of it that was made mm-hmm. by the Crusaders actually, who 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 recited the Song of Rome. Kind of the point. Of, right. Yeah, they and they translated it into German, and it was taken by them when they went off to fight against Muslims in 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 the Holy Land. So they saw that very much as the as the right reading of the story. But these stories, one of the reasons that these stories endure is because they're beautifully written. And so they're able to really powerfully connect with people, not I think not just on an ideological level, but as poetry. And that means that there's a sensibility, a sort of a finer sensibility behind them, which is which may well have been endorsing that kind of violence, but is also probably doing something more and i think if you look at the verses of the french of the song of roland there's this beautiful poetry um you know mm-hmm. bigotry and beautiful verse making don't usually go together but that does seem to be one case where perhaps it did <laughs> but also that the the mind behind it has 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 also taken into account this this sort of more interesting range of 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 ideas of 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 eastern goods and and of of the way that they're being used by by the characters so there's a bit more going on there um i think sometimes 
sometimes they are very specifically mis misinterpreted. So one example is with the Nibelungen lead by the Nazis, when mm. um, Heinrich Himmler, who was celebrating the, the, the SS's victory in the Night of the Long Knives, and he, he declared that they had risen from the blood of the SA like Siegfried from the blood of the dragon, because in, the, in that story, Siegfried bathes in a dragon's blood, and it's supposed to make him immortal. But the telling point is that in the story, a linden leaf falls between his shoulder blades, and so there's one spot where he can still be killed, just as, you know, it's always the thing with heroes, isn't it? There's always one vulnerable <laughs> spot. And and um, and but Himmler, when he was talking about it, had forgotten about that detail, or or maybe deliberately mis um, uh, mislaid ignored it, it. Yeah. ignored it. Yeah, and um, so he he just focused on that sense of immortality. But the whole what makes the story interesting isn't the fact that Siegfried makes himself immortal. It's the fact that there is one point where he can still be killed. That's why it's an interesting story because you then, as soon as you know that in the story, you know that at some point he's going to come to his mortal death through that 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 one little spot where the linden leaf fell. Mm-hmm. You know, this also reminds me that these are stories, right? Uh, to use an epic yeah. for uh, the narrative of a nation is just as bizarre as using something like Star Wars to, to speak to the origins of, <laughs> of, of the United States or something. It, it just well, doesn't exactly, work yeah. because there are stories in, in, in many cases, you know, some of these stories that are purported to have these historical connections aren't historic at all, right? The Song of Roland, for example. I mean, the Basques, <laughs> you know? Like, yes, like, <laughs> yes. It's a bit of a surprise, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So in the story, it's this big, grand battle between Christendom and 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 Islam because that's <laughs> you know that's the great bombastic conflict. But uh, that that medieval society wanted to you know they wanted to enjoy that sort of conflict in their storytelling. But when you go into the historical roots, it turns out that there was there was a historical event at which Roland or uh, Hoflanders was was killed um, on the Spanish pass fighting for Charlemagne. But he was he was killed in a, an ambush by the the ancestors of the Basque, the Vascones. So uh, that wasn't seen as glorious enough though for the for the medieval right. chroniclers and the medieval storytellers. So they had to make it something much bigger. Just as you know any Hollywood movie, the big blockbusters you know they're not going to have the last star wars movie isn't going to end up with it just being a you know um one bounty hunter as the enemy you know it's got to be a big army of 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 all of all possible evil um, in order for it to be exciting and so it's the same principle i suppose you know that's uh, which is one of the the points actually that these stories are they're sort of the roots of storytelling they remind us of how people have been telling stories for for centuries and millennia they've been pushing aside the facts just as you know hollywood historical epics do and uh, and you know trying to find the most exciting most crowd pleasing version of the story that they can get <laughs> yeah <laughs> and it worked that's why we still have these stories because they were so popular right i was just thinking here um about the uh, the stories coming out of spain as well uh, the story of el cid El Cid, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> and you know, you have these wonderful kind of movies about you know the valiant uh, hero kind of marching through, and um, but history is a little bit more complicated than these stories yeah. make them out to be. Uh, yeah, it's often more interesting. I mean, the historical yeah. El Cid much more interesting than the Hollywood version. He's a fascinating, uh, incredibly slippery and ambiguous character. But the interesting but- thing is that so many people place, you know, uh, an, uh, I guess a narrative on a story that's fundamentally 
in, incorrect or <laughs> you know, just yeah. historic. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's that's the thing that I think the, the power of stories sort of drowns the facts, and and we end up getting so sucked in by the story that it doesn't really matter in the end to you know from an audience point of view or from a sort of from the enjoyment of the story point of view. But I think that it is for me. It's interesting to enjoy these stories and each of the epics that I write about I enjoy them all I think they're all fantastic stories but at the same time there's also I think this other layer of knowing that they are playing around they are playing very sort of fast and loose with the historical facts and that that can sometimes be dangerous and the image that I came up with in the book really was that they're sort of like wild beasts you know they're beautiful and incredibly powerful and you know you want them to be in the world but they're also a bit dangerous and you know if you misuse them or you mistreat them then then they're going to bite it's interesting I think the audience can hear that uh, you've done your research, right? This book, in fact, is pretty well researched. And I mentioned to you previously um, that I found the the book to be, I couldn't explain it, but, um, you know, tight or or clean and just kind of well put together, well researched. And, you know, it is also a a travel book, right? So it's part travel, right? And part part history. And can you weave in these narratives between, you know, literary criticism and, travel. And I just wanted to get a sense um, of how you kind of approached the the research and the writing of this book. Um, so h- how did you go about cobbling this idea yeah. together? Yeah, I saw it always very much that it was going to be a travel book. And, you know, I felt like there are different ways, obviously, to to celebrate our epic storytelling and or or to explore Europe, and it, it, it it's something that one could certainly have done, say, from a from a library or from 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 as a sort of desk a desk based book. But I felt like this was something where I had to sort of these stories are themselves so dynamic and so full of full of adventure that I wanted to to kind of have my own adventure that would be a a kind of way of paying homage to them um Mm. but would also be about exploring the landscapes that they came from i think there's a tendency sometimes for us to see stories as so universal these sort of ancient stories that they're so universal that we forget that they come from very specific places and that those landscapes informed the way that they were created i mean when you travel around greece and whilst thinking about the odyssey you become i think increasingly aware of how much landscape plays a part in that story how those sun-kissed beaches those those very bristly hills i mean ithaca the landscape of ithaca is so vivid in in the odyssey both in Odysseus's memory and then when he comes back to the island and also his son Telemachus when he's thinking about it, about Ithaca and its landscape, which makes it very different from other islands. So I felt I had to go to that kind of, to that island and to see it and to experience it and was lucky enough to find the place where, uh, to visit the place where um, some archaeologists believe that they found Odysseus's castle or the, the ruins of what might have been. So going through the landscapes, I felt was really important, but also meeting people who were engaging with these stories. And for me, that was probably one of the main parts of the book. I felt that it was about meeting people who were retelling these stories, were reimagining them or, or were engaging them with them in some way, whether it was um, uh, there's a, a, a guy I met in Greece, a musician who, who performs on the lyre and gets members of the public to read passages from the Odyssey. Or in the Balkans, meeting folk singers who are performing the Kosovo cycle. Or in Sicily, meeting puppeteers who perform stories about Roland and the paladins of Charlemagne from connected to the, the Song of Roland. Or playwrights in Germany. There was an investigative journalist I met in Germany who'd, who'd explored the connections between the Nibelungenlied and the Nazi regime. Or um, there was a guy in 
uh, I met in in Paris actually um, an American you know, musicologist who performs Beowulf and um, has learned the whole poem and performs it brilliantly in Anglo-Saxon. Hmm. So all these different people who are who are engaging with these stories and one of the lessons I guess that I learned from the from doing this journey was where I, I think there's that tendency to think of epic stories that they that they need this big epic platform and I think this is again something that sort of Hollywood has has corrupted us with this idea that you can only tell big stories in on big screens and I realized as I went around and heard the stories told by whether it was seeing uh, volunteers reciting from the Odyssey in Athens or, uh, or a single storyteller reciting Beowulf or folk singers in Iceland performing extracts from the sagas. I realised that these are the most powerful ways of telling these stories. They, there's no budget. There's no big special effects. It's just pure storytelling. And it's absolutely exhilarating. And meeting these mm. people, hearing them performing these stories and then talking to them about the stories and about their approach to telling these stories was, was for me perhaps the most fascinating part of the journey and was very much how I wanted to tell the story. I didn't want it to be about these long ago stories that nobody reads. I wanted it to be about what can be done with these stories today and how they are still alive and how they still matter to people and are still not just texts sort of set down on paper, but but stories that are still being reshaped and and and, and retold. And lived, right? So lived. many of these epics that they're like, by their definition, right, kind of performed songs, right? They're, they're yeah. stories that are performed and yeah. in order to perhaps understand, you know, what they're about. One must live through the experience of place or yeah. space in this context. Yeah. Yeah, so um, so those connections that you made are, are interesting. Can you um, talk to us about the sub-narratives of this book? And by that, I mean, there's like the sub-narrative of you losing your medications and your backpack, I believe, and you're yes. kind of hes yeah. hesitant to, to weave that into the story. Why were you hesitant to do so on that level? The book is very much a travel book. So it's very much my my adventure into these stories and that sort of how right. I get into the stories. And so I want and I wanted very much to tell it as a as a continuous journey and to do it as a continuous journey. I think one of the things that I was excited about doing with this book was and uh, but I've, I guess I've done with each of my travel books is to try and have a continuous journey. I'm sort of conscious that there's this increasing fashion for more excursion based travel writing nowadays where a lot of travel writers are sort of doing a series of short trips. Um, and mm -hmm. I think that has, well, there's all kinds of problems with that ethically as well as in a literary sense. I think that, um, I mean, for one thing, it, it means inc incredible um, air miles. But um, but I think there's also the, the, the point of trying to build up the momentum of a journey. So I wanted to be able to tell the story of a journey in which these various stories are, are interwoven. And so it's about sort of that that that's that sense of hopefully the the building momentum as you go through the journey and the cumulative effect of sort of seeing all these stories coming together but yeah obviously that that then involves my own personal responses to the stories and talking about how they've uh, affected me in sort of different experiences that I've had in my life and that's yeah that's something that I do go on to in the book i think that when you're writing this kind of a book i guess some of the writers that i've been influenced by people like um, uh, Paul Theroux or Jonathan Rabanne or um, some of those sort of travel writers from the 70s and 80s who were often quite quite open in how they talked about themselves um, mm -hmm. and you know that this idea you sort of got to come clean you don't you you know if you're if you're telling a, your your a first person story I think you've just got to be open so I mean in Greece I had this um, 
I guess it was quite early on in my journey, actually, when I decided to go to the, the cave of Hades. And um, I guess it was probably not a very wise choice. But I think, <laughs> you know, with, with travel writing, I think you've sort of got to throw yourself head in and headlong and, and, and see what happens. And so, um, so you know, I went off to see this cave and ended up losing my, my luggage and losing um, a lot of things along the way and having a bit of a torrid time. And, and, and that was you know, that was a good lesson. I realized then I've got to be a bit more careful and um, not just drop my luggage behind um, a random rock on a, on a very steep right. hillside. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, it did, lay, it led, I guess, to a, to a few damn points in the journey, which, um, which then sort of reverberated a bit later. Yeah. The reason why I bring that up is because this obviously is about your adventure, but it's also about the texts themselves and how people read the texts. And it's nice to be brought back down. So you're talking about these, these high-minded kind of things. And then, you know, we get brought back down to the real lived experience of, of the moment, right? You, you lost your, you lost your shit, right? You lost your bags. Yeah. That was yeah. A, a nice kind of counterpoint to, you know, this higher kind of narrative of, of the stories. Yeah. Oh, thanks. I mean, I think that, that, that that's the thing that I, I guess I wanted also to work out for myself and then also to talk about, which is that these stories, they, we do have a tendency, I think, to sort of, to stick them in ivory towers and see them as these very far away, very lofty artifacts that we can't really touch. And so we have to remind ourselves that they are just stories about, people um, doing things that actually are not that far away from things that we do today. You know, the Odyssey, the part of the Odyssey that speaks to me the most is the relationship between Odysseus and Telemachus, because it's about mm. a father and son. And it, I am always really moved by reading the reunion between Odysseus and his son, because it speaks to me about aspects from my own life. And and I find, I, I feel like it's very, very human. It's, it's just pure emotion between two family members and I think a lot of the stories are like that which is why I think they're much more they're much more intimate and they're much more grounded than people often realize more than I realized before I started really going into them um, and I think that's you know that's one of the reasons why they're so much worth reading because they're they they remind us that people have been dealing with the same issues for for hundreds and thousands of years of mm -hmm. you know relationships between husbands and wives fathers and sons mothers and daughters and those really core relationships that we all have in our lives that those are there in in tales from 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 millennia and centuries ago. Perhaps this is a fashionable thing to do nowadays, but I was <laughs> rereading my old copy of the Decameron, right? B Boccaccio's uh, uh, great, oh, right, yes, four, yeah, fourteenth century, yes, uh, book great about, tale of lockdown, yes, yeah. And uh, I was rereading this in the introduction of the first day. He's talking about what people are doing in the city of Florence, right? And he's saying yeah. that some people are, you know, locking down, right? They're shutting their their shutters and they're not going out. And other people are saying, well, to hell with it. If we're going to die, we might as well, you know, live a good life. And so they're going out to the taverns and, and socializing and things. Yeah. <laughs> it was an interesting parallel because we're having this debate in the United States, I'm sure elsewhere as well, that people are on lockdown, but other people are saying, you know, you can't hold me yeah. in the house, let me go out. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, there's something so exciting there, isn't there, about seeing that and, and seeing that sort of written down and thinking that there's obviously lots of aspects of these stories that can feel very alien. I think like in the Homeric epics, you know, the, the, it can often feel like the language is archaic, that the, there's all these strange rituals and these strange creatures and yet you get those moments um, and I guess that would be the same, you know, when you're reading that opening part of the Decameron, you get those moments and it definitely comes through in a lot of the stories of the Decameron, where you realise this is just like 
us today and it's mm-hmm. you know you get this sort of frisson of excitement it's as if you're sort of this wormhole has suddenly been been sort of magically created that's that's linked you right through right. to that that time long ago i find that like you know, the most exciting hit you know to that you can have in in reading and it's so it's such a buzz whenever you get those moments and i i don't think you get it every single page or every single passage but i think it happens enough in some of these stories to make them the such exciting things to read Mm-hmm. Indeed. Well, we're butting against the end of our hour. Can I ask you to please read a passage from the book? Yeah, sure. Okay, so I'm going to read a passage from uh, from my time in Iceland. So this was the the final destination of the journey, but this is a little bit before the final, the actual final destination. But I was I was hiking, I was hitchhiking, and um, in Iceland mostly, um, I, I couldn't really afford to do anything else really in Iceland because it's so expensive. <laughs> so uh, so I was hitchhiking and camping, uh, which meant getting very wet a lot of the time and battered by storms. But I also felt that was a part of of you know i had to experience the icelandic landscape in order to to understand the icelandic sagas and the story that i was wandering around in was was particularly the story of the the saga of bert neout which is a story about about a lawyer actually who 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 tries to 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 mount lots of legal cases to stop everybody from killing each other and he's he's not very successful at it they always seem to end up getting their axes out and chopping off each other's limbs <laughs> But um, I was on my way to to the farmhouse of his friend Gunnar, who in the story he 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 gets exiled, but he decides to stay in his home, and that means his enemy can can converge on the farmstead with with impunity, and they they end up uh, slaughtering him in a big in a big a big violent battle. So I'm just going to read about my 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 journey towards Gunnar's farmstead. Ahead, wrinkled slopes of tough stone slid from the distinctive pinnacles of Three Peak Mountain, like giant troll ears billowing either side of a knobbly crown. The rain-swept perspective was distorting, stretching ever further, until at last the dirt track turned alongside the foothills. Only now I could feel my heart sinking. Close to the mountain base was the gleam of a river, dashing over the bed, pleating across the boulders in the middle, as clear and bright as whiskey. The wind was bawling too hard to hear the river's hiss, but as I drew closer, I realised it wasn't running out. The river had ambushed me. In order to trek further south, I would have to ford it. I climbed up lava knolls, mud softening underfoot, taking the highway in search of a dryway. But there was no other option. No way was I turning back now. It had taken hours to get this far. Besides, how much wetter could I get? Off came my shoes, socks and trousers, stuffed inside my backpack, and in went me. Those first steps in the stream, it felt like I was wrapping my ankles in ice cubes. Treading over a pebbly islet, I dropped into a deeper stream, about five metres across, which lapped my thighs with its icy touch. The current tugged at my balance, and it took a few mincing steps to adjust to its rhythm. On the last stretch, I went too fast up the bank and had to drop back into the river before I could mount it. Wading through Icelandic rivers in my underwear, this was not an activity I'd been planning before the trip, and not one I had any wish to repeat. My feet had turned ivory white, the soles wrinkled, blisters bubbling around my toes. I rubbed them down with my towel, coddling them in my thickest socks, stifling the pain where my blisters had leaked. A road trickled over the hillside ahead. If I was reading the map correctly, this should carry me around the shoulder of the mountain towards Gunnar's home place of Flitherendi. I crossed my fingers there wouldn't be any more rivers to ford. 
I'd walked nearly 20 miles today, but there were still several more to go. The track turned to gravel and carried me over a couple of streams, now channelled, thankfully through pipes, towards the waterfall of Nitafoss. Beryl green hills flooded the cascade, which plunged down crevasses of steamy throth and icy seracs like mammoth tusks. This valley is known as Flossy Dalor, or Flossy's Dale, after the arsonist who leads the burning of Neart's farmhouse. According to the saga, this is where they gather after murdering the lawyer and his family. Over the last hour, my body was beginning to give way, my right knee twinging, my legs starting to buckle, my fingers throbbing from the cold. The road curled through pine and fir down to the main road, where farmsteads gleamed with metal and glass and other artificial materials. Exotic sights after so many miles of raw nature. I hadn't eaten anything since morning, and now I was so hungry I drooled at the sight of a crowberry bush. Standing on the stoop of a roadside guesthouse, a kindly lady held back a curious toddler and pointed me towards a pine cabin across the road, which functioned as a kitchen for her guests. As I stepped inside, my breath poured out like steam from a hot pot. The cabin was occupied by three couples. They were watching movies on their iPads, faces lit by the screen's clamshell glow, and none of them looked up. Thank God, I was too weary to talk. Slowly, relishing the calm ambience of the place, I boiled up a mug of soup, savouring the heat on my lips even more than the taste of the broth. The last dabs of light had been sucked out of the sky, so I followed the path towards Gunnar's old home with a torch application on my phone. Climbing uphill through the spittering rain, I saw asylum, a tiny shed, a hoop of corrugated iron cluttered with planks of rotten wood and blocks of stone. Crawling inside, I tucked myself into a ball, hugging my damp knees. I was really spent, and it was only later that I mustered the energy to unroll my sleeping bag. This was the place Gunnar loved so much that he gambled his life on the chance to stay there. In the morning, it would show me its beauty. Thank you for reading that. Yeah. Can you let us know where we can find you online? How, how can we track you down? Oh, yes. Well, I've got a website, which is www.nickjubber.com. And I'm on Twitter at at Jubber's Travels. So, yeah, those are the two main oh, okay. places to find me. <laughs> Very good. I'll put links to those in the show notes. And uh... Oh, and I'm on Instagram, actually. Yes, you can find me. You can find some pictures from the books on Instagram as well at Nick Jubber. Well, good deal. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, taking the time to speak with us. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. It's been a pleasure talking to you. You can find the episode show notes and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at patreon.com forward slash travel writing world. Thanks for your support.